If you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, let us know. Just raise your hand up real quick, and we will get one over to you. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 3, read on down through verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father God, I pray this morning against any invisible power or principality, any invisible enemy that seeks to exalt itself and its ideas above the name of Jesus Christ and would seek to influence us in that way as well, that would seek to drown out the word that is being preached, that would seek to obscure that word, obscure that message. Father, I pray that you would silence those powers and principalities even now, Father. The act of preaching and teaching and the act of listening to the word being preached is spiritual warfare, God. So God, I pray that you would go before us in this warfare and be victorious, Father. Help us to hear your word clearly, to understand your word clearly, to know and believe your word, and to love your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're doing a summer series through the book of Ephesians called The Riches of His Grace. Um, And then we will, after the summer, Lord willing, jump back into Acts. But um, I think it's a good place for us to be right now in Ephesians for a lot of different reasons. And uh, providentially, we, where we stopped in Acts, Paul happens to be, at least in the story, in Ephesians at that time. So I think it's good for us to be in Ephesians right now. In Ephesus, I should say, is where Paul was. Um, and so we started the series last week. We introduced the series by looking at the salutation here in this book. And after the salutation... Paul bursts into this phenomenal explosion of praise that we read in verses 3 through 14. Paul doesn't take any time getting his listeners into the deep end. I don't know when you were a kid or not. I I was the kind of kid when I got in a pool, I was a gradual enterer into the pool. I got to to the shallow end, down the steps, and just kind of got in. There were other kids that just jump right into the deep end, sink or swim, didn't matter. And they just jump right in. That's kind of like Paul right here. He just jumps into this tremendous outburst, overflow of praise that we read in verses 13 through 14. It's like, an, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant as you read this passage. This is actually one very long sentence. Verses 3 through 14 are only one sentence in the Greek. One very long sentence. Now your translations probably have some punctuation there to break it up to make it easier for us to digest. But in the original, it consists of 202 words. It's one sentence that's 202 words long. It starts like a traditional Old Testament or Jewish um, extended formal blessing. A lot of times you'll read in the Psalms or in other places uh, this, this, this formula, blessed be the God who has, 
or who is, and then it would go into a blessing of Jehovah. In this case, it's focused on the blessings of God, the blessings from God, and blessing Him for what He has done through Christ. I entitled today's message, although I didn't put it on the screens, that uh, this, is, this whole little section here is a blessing toward God. We're blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing. We're blessing God in this passage. Paul is blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing. The way I look at this text is it's kind of like a, kind of like a, a kaleidoscope, if you will. Um, I don't know if you kids like playing with kaleidoscopes, but let me, let me let one of them try to do something for me here this morning. Um, I only see one hand, so hold on to the kaleidoscope, Micah. All right. Or drop it, whichever. And look up into the light and describe what you see. No, no, with the kaleidoscope. <laughs> I needed to be more specific. All right. Now, what do you see? Just hold it still. Don't, don't twist it yet. What do you see? Can you describe it? Flowers and purple things and all sorts of shapes and colors. All right, now twist it a couple of times and let's see. Okay, now you see crystals. You see new colors. Now point it up to the light there because the back of Tanner's shirt is kind of dark and it's not going to show up well. All right, you see new colors now, some new shapes now. It's still beautiful, isn't it? All right? All right, now let me have it back so that you can pay attention during the sermon. All right? You know, this text is, is like, like looking at the gospel through a kaleidoscope. And I kind of have, that's the feeling of what Paul's doing here. He, he just takes us into another and another and another layer of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And it's like looking through this kaleidoscope and you see the beauty of the gospel and then he spins it again and then, oh my goodness, and there's just more and more and more as we look at this text. And so this morning, uh, I want us to think about how beautiful the gospel message is. And, and to be honest with you, I don't think that we really allow texts like this one to grasp us the way they should. Because if they did, it would certainly change a lot of the things in our lives. It starts off in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, Paul's blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing. The word for blessing here is the, is the same word for eulogy. The word where we get our word today for, for eulogy. And what it means is to praise or to honor someone. So when you give a eulogy at a funeral, you're honoring, you're praising that person who has who has passed away. So this is a, a praising and honoring of God. Now notice the Trinitarian aspect of this blessing. Say, blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessings here are, are ministries carried out in us through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, the very presence of the Spirit himself is, is the grandest of those blessings. Now, so we read here that these blessings take place in the heavenly places, or literally the heavenlies. Okay, this phrase that Paul uses here, the heavenlies, it's only used uh, in this book, and it's used five times in this book, and it's used to denote that these blessings are not in the physical realm. Our blessings are spiritual blessings that we experience in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Now this phrase, in Christ, or the variation of this phrase, uh, for example, we see multiple times it says, in Him. Throughout this, this beautiful explosion of praise here, that phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Beloved, is mentioned 11 times. So Paul's trying to get our attention here. 11 times he says, in Christ, in Him, through Jesus Christ, in the Beloved, in Him, in Christ, in Him, in Him, in Christ, in Him, in Him. And it's just over and over and over again. And so I want to borrow an a, a, uh, illustration from another preacher, from Matt Chandler, who talked about what this means to be in Him. And, and so this, this illustration would be, go, go sort of like this. I'm expanding upon it a little bit if you've heard it before. 
but let's say I were to come up to one of you guys and say, I can fly. And you were to look at me and say, well, you're crazy. And I said, well, I, I want to show you that I can fly. And we go down to downtown Atlanta, and we were to go up the elevator to one of the highest skyscrapers in the city. And I were to walk up to the edge of that skyscraper. And not only would you think I'm crazy now, you'd probably begin to fear for my life. And rightfully so, because if I were to jump off that building, I would prove that I cannot really fly. Now let's change the scenario a bit. Let's say I came to you and said, hey, I can fly. And you, again, think I'm crazy. But this time I take you down to Hartsville-Jackson Airport, and I get into a jet plane, and they shut the door, and the plane takes off, and, and I'm flying. And you, you may say, well, that's not fair. You're not actually flying. The, the plane is actually flying. And I would say, you're absolutely right. That's the picture what's happening here in the gospel, is that we are in Christ. There is absolutely nothing we can accomplish on our own. If I'm flying in an airplane, yes, I do use that phrase. I'm flying. I fly to Florida. I fly to Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm flying. Okay, but I'm not actually accomplishing anything on my own. The plane gets all the glory. The plane gets all the credit. It's doing the hard work. I'm just in the plane, therefore I'm flying. And so, if we're going to understand the gospel correctly, and not just our salvation, but our sanctification, if we're going to understand the, the, the full implications of the gospel, then, then we have to understand this phrase that we are in Him. Jesus gets all the credit. We have been united with Him. And He gets all the credit in everything that happens in our life. If we try to take any of the credit, if we try to implement rules and regulations in our life to make us more holy, and without giving Him the credit for the work of sanctification in us, if we try to do anything, if we add works to our salvation, it's as foolish as standing on the edge of that building and saying, I can fly. Matter of fact, I would say it's just as dangerous as standing on the edge of that building and saying, I can fly. You're teetering with your eternal salvation if you take any credit for what God has done in the gospel. And so we read this here, and we need to understand that Paul is pointing out over and over and over again, 11 times, that this, these truths, these glorious things that we're praising God for are a result of us being in Him. So I want to just walk through this passage today. Um, let's see if you guys can get me working back there, Jordan. All right, I'm just going to walk through this passage today. And the first thing, if you look at your notes there, it says, If we are in Him, we should be overflowing with praise. Because first of all, the Father has chosen us to be His faultless adopted sons. If we are in Him, we should be overflowing. We should be a fire hydrant of praise. We should, we should be exploding forth with praise because the Father has chosen us to be His faultless adopted sons verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved he the father chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless adopted sons. So let's camp out here a little bit. Election, predestination, choosing, these are utterly, utterly biblical words. Those who don't, do not like them, you don't like these words, don't come and complain to me. Don't deal with me. Deal with the text. Those who don't like these words must go directly to the scriptures and argue with it. Texts like this one are, are sadly avoided today in, in many churches because uh, I think that they lead our mind to some obvious conclusions about God that we don't like to accept. If we take these texts literally, which we should, they lead our minds to a place that our man-centered stubbornness does not like to go. One of the reasons I like expository preaching where you preach through books of the Bible is that you can't avoid the tough passages. If we just want to do topics all the time, we could do that, and you can very easily avoid the difficult passages in the Bible by just picking the topics you want to pick. 
But when you go through a book of the Bible, you get to tough passages like this one. And tough passages like Acts chapter 13, verse 48, when we read that all who were appointed to eternal life believed. And so we have to wrestle with these texts. When it says here that he chose us in him, this word is obviously past tense. In the Greek, it's past tense as well. It's in the aorist tense. It's in the middle voice. It's reflexive, and thus it stresses, it's stressing God's action here, his free, independent work of grace that he did by himself and for himself. The, 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 the tense here of this verb makes it very clear who's the one choosing, and that it's exclusively something that he is doing by himself and for himself. God's freedom is part of what makes him God. Basically, we have to decide who is ultimately the most free being in the universe. Is it us or is it God? Who's ultimately the most free being in all the universe? It's, going, it's either going to be us or it's going to be him. And God's freedom, his absolute freedom, is what makes him God. We've been seeing on the news a lot lately over in, over in uh, the Middle East and in other places where people are, are protesting and and rebelling against government and some of them may be doing it for for other reasons to maybe install uh, Muslim extremist governments but others I believe are genuinely fighting for what freedom because all mankind including our forefathers of this nation don't feel like they're truly human unless they're free freedom is an important thing we want to be free if you if your freedoms are restricted I had a very short and I didn't want to go any farther than one comment Facebook interaction with a classmate of mine this week as we talked about the fact that in the city of New York or the state of New York they've now are not are banning churches churches from meeting in schools so it's going to put a lot of church plants out on the street starting here pretty soon now it's being appealed and everything but I got on there and, and my, I, I said how horrible this was and my friend got on and said well would you be saying it's horrible if if, if Muslims were using the schools and if, and if Hindus were using the schools, and I said, yes, I don't care who's using the schools, first of all, because the truth will win out. And so I want the schools to be free for us to be able to use for gospel proclamation. And secondly, I believe in freedom. Freedom's important. So if it's that important to us and that important for us to feel human, freedom, then how much more for God? How much more is freedom, absolute freedom? important to him being who he is our human nature our man-centered predisposition does not like this teaching but it can't be much clearer than it is here and in several other texts of the Bible I had a friend of mine who was a pastor and he had one of his church members come up to him and just say this I don't believe in predestination and election and my friend said to him, that's not a choice. Now we can agree to disagree on what those things mean, but it's not a choice to say you don't believe in predestination and election because it's in the scriptures. You don't have a choice there. It's there. It's biblical. And so you have to deal with it. How we understand it, how we believe that God works it out, that may differ, but not believing it is not a choice. You have to wrestle with this book and if God so desires, he'll knock your hip out of its socket in order to get you where he wants you to be. And that can be very painful. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer writes this. He says, all Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do and mistakenly imagine and insist that they reject it. What causes this odd state of affairs? Well, the root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church. The intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than man, and a consequent subjection, subjecting of scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. People see the Bible, sorry, people see the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see, man indeed cannot see, how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over those actions. They are not content to let the two truths live side by side 
as they do in the scriptures, but jump to the conclusion that in order to uphold the biblical truth of human responsibility, they are bound to reject the equally biblical and equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great number of texts that teach it. The desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out the mysteries is natural to our perverse minds. And it is not, trouble, it is not surprising that even godly men should fall victim to it. Hence, this persistent and troublesome uh, dispute. The irony of the situation, however, is that when we ask how the two sides pray, it becomes apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe it just as strongly as those who affirm it. In other words, all of us believe in God's sovereignty when we pray. All of us believe in God's sovereignty when we pray. Just listen to your prayers next time. Don't reject what God clearly teaches just because your mind can't fully wrap itself around it. Matter of fact, you're going to have a hard time wrapping your mental faculties around the fact that God wrote the Bible, but also used human authors to do so. That we are called to work out our own salvation, yet God is at work in us. That no one can snatch us away from the Father's hand, yet we are called to make our calling and election secure. That God is one, yet in three persons. That Jesus is fully God, yet fully man. And on and on and on. We must rest in God's word, trust in God's word, believe God's word. Be a biblicist above all. Don't try to adjust the weight of God's word. When I was in soccer in college, there was a few guys on our team that were very, very lazy. I mentioned to you before we weren't very good, so I'm sure that helped our situation. The, helped the fact that we weren't good is that we had a lot of lazy guys on the team. And there were guys who would cut corners when we were supposed to be running five-mile courses. And, and there were other guys when we, when we went to the weight room. Yes, so soccer guys do do weights as well. When we went to the weight room, and they would, I remember... In particular, this one guy, he would adjust the weights. The co coach set the weights where he wanted it to be for all of us. And uh, we did these leg pressing things. And, and I remember this one guy, he went, the coach isn't watching. There's only a couple of coaches. They were off doing something else. And he just went up and adjusted the weights because he didn't want to deal with the weight that the coach had set. And so I think that's the way we are with the scriptures a lot of times. This is weighty stuff. I don't like this weight. This weight makes me feel uncomfortable. This weight hurts. I'm going to adjust the weights a little bit more to my liking. Don't try to adjust the weight of God's Word. Let it, let it lean on you. Let it press you down to where it wants you to be. But didn't I choose God? Didn't I choose God, you might say? Yes, but only because He first chose you in His Son in eternity. Didn't I make a decision for Christ? Yes, but only because God first decided for you in Christ in eternity. We do have a free moral Choices, moral agency to make free choices, yet God is absolutely sovereign over those choices. The buck stops with him, and therefore he gets all the glory. And election language, this language of election and choosing and predestination, is not limited to the New Testament. God has always been an electing God, as Paul's Jewish readers would have known very well. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This, that text alone right there seems to have a lot of connections with what Paul is saying here. Paul is talking about a new people, the new Jesus tribe. He's talking about that here as he goes through Ephesians. But even back when God was talking about physical Israel, we see he, he's a choosing God. And Israel was not chosen because of how great they were. The very next verse in that text in Deuteronomy says, It was not because you were more in number than all the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So too, the timing of our choosing is in eternity. It excludes any sort of boasting, any sort of boasting that we might try to, to bring about, any credit we might try to give to ourselves. When God does something on your behalf before you were born, that excludes your boasting. 
So before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God has chosen, had chosen you in Christ. You were therefore created to be his special possession. It's not based upon us, but solely upon him. This is taught over and over and over again in the scriptures. Let us not kick against God's word. We'll find it, we'll find it to be a goad that ends up bloodying our feet. Calvin said this, John Calvin said, the very time when the election took place proves it to be free. For what could we have deserved or what merit did we possess before the world was made? How childish is the attempt to meet this argument by the following sophism. We were chosen because we were worthy and because God foresaw that we would be worthy. Calvin goes on to say, we were all lost in Adam and therefore had not God, through his own election, rescued us from perishing, there was nothing to be foreseen. In other words, how could God foresee something that he's still responsible for? It still depends upon him, and it was done through Christ. It's all about his glory. The explosion of praise that Paul just burst forth with here would be less explosive if we had any, any, any credit in our salvation at all. You understand how much less explosive this praise would be if there would be any part of our salvation that, well, we can take credit for this over here. God, boom, here you go. Oh, by the way, yippee, look what I did. Nothing, zilch, it's all over here exploding in praise towards God because there's nothing we can take credit for. Your praise of the holy, sovereign God of the universe is minimized if we don't understand his sovereignty, if we don't get this. We don't get this, we don't give praise the way we should. And like I said, you're not going to be able to wrap your mind around this. You've got to embrace the mystery, as Packer would say, of God's sovereign control over our decisions, even our decision to follow him in him what God has determined before time for time itself as part of the created order was carried out on the cross through Jesus Christ but the cross itself was already set in stone by the unwavering will and purpose of God before the foundation of the world the love that God has for the Son existed before the foundation of the world therefore if we are in him if we've been united with Christ that love that God had for the Son before the foundation of the world is the love he has for us before the foundation of the world John 17 24 father I desire this is Jesus speaking that they also whom you have given me whom you have given me that's election friends whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world therefore heaven itself was prepared for those chosen before the foundation of the world Matthew 25 34 then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world it's a done deal the cross was therefore in view and in the economy of God's eternal purposes it was finished the work of Christ was finished before the foundation of the world Hebrews 4 3 says that his works speaking of Jesus were finished from the foundation of the world and Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 referring to the lost says that they are people whose names have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain so go do a word search on before the foundation of the world and see what comes up it's a pretty amazing thing but our being chosen our election was unto something it was it has a purpose behind it namely our holiness that we should be holy and blameless before God faultless second Timothy 1 9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling listen to this text and see how it fits with what we're reading today God saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began 
So don't read Ephesians and think, wow, this is just some sort of odd text. It fits with the rest of the Scripture, hand in glove, all over the place. When you begin to embrace the full sovereignty of God, and I mean the full, free, sovereign grace of God, you can't help but see it all over the place in Scripture. It explodes off the pages. 1 Peter 1.15 But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but it was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him, through him, are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This choosing, this calling of God is an act of his free, sovereign grace, but it's not aimless. It's aimed at our holiness. Okay? First of all, it says be holy. That means that's positively. We should have something. We should have holiness. And secondly, it says be blameless. So we should be set apart, and then we should be blameless. We should be without something, without blemish, without spot, without fault. Our election promises and secures our holiness. Without holiness, we cannot see God, according to Hebrews 12, 14. God has done his saving work in us and through his Son in order to present us to himself in perfection. Colossians 1, 21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. According to 1 Corinthians 5.10, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we can either stand at that judgment seat, we can either stand there before him with our righteousness and our holiness, or we can appear before him with an imputed and alien righteousness and holiness given to those who have been united with Christ, to those who are in him. Therefore, holiness is important. The question we have to ask ourselves when we look at this text is, are we growing in holiness? Are we pursuing holiness? Are we growing in blamelessness? You were chosen to be conformed to the image of a holy and blameless Son of God. And are we becoming that? How do we make our calling and election sure? By examining our life and saying, are we on a path of holiness? Do the little white lies that I was so freely told a year ago, do they bother me now? Am I pursuing the word more now than I was a month ago? Do I desire God more now than ever before? Am I growing in holiness? If you are not united with Christ, then you are guaranteed to be made holy. Thus, you should expect it in your life. Remember, our election secures our holiness. Therefore, if you're not seeing holiness, if you're not seeing growth, if you're not seeing sanctification, get back to this word and make sure you understand the gospel. Make sure you understand the gospel. Because if you are truly in him, then your holiness is a sure thing and it should be happening in your life. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he disciplines us. He disciplines us to bring about holiness. My goodness, Hebrews 12, 5 and the verses that follow have been just on my mind personally, but for our church as well, because I feel this is what God is doing right now. He's sort of pressing us, pressing us through a discipline of refinement. Hebrews 12, 5 says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, stop right there. Because I think a lot of times we look at the discipline of the Lord that comes into our life, and sometimes it's so obvious you can't question it. Boy, this is God's discipline on me. 
And I think sometimes we may look at that as a sign of disapproval of who we are and therefore equate that with, well, I'm not in Christ then. I must not be a Christian. I must not be a believer because God is allowing all these things to happen to me. And we begin to question our, our salvation. But if we understand what discipline truly is for, it actually confirms our salvation if we continue to read on in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if, you have, if you're not being disciplined in your life, you're not a real son. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the one father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may, here it is, share his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I have been, I have been clinging to this promise for a, a few months now. I've been clinging to this promise, just holding on to it, believing that this painful period that our church is going through right now has a purpose. And, and therefore, I believe that it's going to yield a, a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that by it, we're going to be trained. He disciplines us because we're his children. Back to our text now. Because it leads right into the next thing that we see here in the text. It says at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, In love, he predestined us, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In love. Now this word in love can, can actually be connected to either the last phrase or to this phrase about predestination. It can be connected to being holy and blameless in love or in love he predestined us. The Greek is ambiguous. You can go either way with it. So you can really go either direction here. And I was just having this discussion with Deemer earlier. Maybe Paul meant it to be sort of ambiguous because either one is true. Because I believe that scripture teaches that that one of the means of, of us becoming holy and, and, and blameless is, is through a growth in love. And love is an expression of holiness. If you go to 1 Thessalonians 3.12, you read a very similar text. It says this, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Love for the brothers, one another. Love for all, that was outside the church. May you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, so love is a means of growing us in holiness. So maybe Paul's referring to us being okay, chosen before the foundation of the world to be blameless, okay, holy, and blameless in love. And that would certainly be true. But it's also true that we've been predestined as Sons, we've been adopted as sons because of his great love. So the text isn't real clear here. Now regarding our adoption, John Stott, John Stott remarks that now through Christ, God is bestowing upon mankind a higher dignity than even creation would bestow upon us. The picture's getting grander. The kaleidoscope, we're turning it, we're turning it again and we're looking at another aspect here. This adoption that we have as sons. What a glorious thing this is. The fire hydrants is flowing forth with even greater volume here, for we were chosen in him, not just so that we could be clean and holy, spotless and righteous, but so that we could be more than that, so that we can actually be his children. That's an amazing thing. I mean, but one thing for God just to say, okay, I'm going to clean you up, get you into heaven. But the Bible goes farther than that. I'm not just cleaning you up and getting you into heaven, which I think is the way people view salvation, to be honest with you. I'm adopting you as a child. You're becoming part of my family. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, you're all familiar with this passage, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And you say to me, aha, you see, it's all who believed in him. Didn't we make the choice? I'm going to let the Bible say, aha, back with verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of 
God, our birth into God's family. Yes, the means of him bringing that about is our faith, but it's a work of God. And we have all the rights associated with our adoption. What a glorious truth this is. Let's read a little bit more about it. Romans 8, 12 says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. It's holiness, my friends. In other words, if you don't see holiness in your life, you're on a path of death. If the deeds of the body of the flesh aren't being put to death in you, then you need some examination. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, those who are growing in holiness, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that he might also be glorified, that we might also be glorified with him. God has made children. He had children in his mind before the foundation of the world. He predestined brothers of Christ, heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. One of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, if you go to 2 Samuel 9, there's this beautiful story. It's not real long. But at this point, David had ascended to the throne in Israel. And in the process of that, God had eliminated. God had wiped out pretty much all of Saul's family. Remember, Saul was a rebellious man. David had refused to take up arms against Saul. And God did it himself. God wiped out Saul's family. And David's on the throne, but he wanted to see if there were any left. And so he, asks, he goes on a search for any remaining relatives of Saul. Now during those times, if a king came to the throne and he usurped the previous king, there would be a systematic effort to eliminate all of his relatives. All of those rebel relatives out there, wipe them out. So David says, are there any remaining relatives of Saul? And someone comes, it was a servant from Saul's house, and well actually there is, there's a guy by the name of Mephibosheth cool name. I don't hear anybody naming their kids that these days, though. Mephibosheth. And um, he's the son of Jonathan. And he was crippled when they fled the city during the war with the Philistines. He was crippled. He got dropped. And he's been crippled all his life. And David says, bring him to me. And Mephibosheth comes and he's fearful because he's afraid of what should happen. And that is that those, these other, this, these, these rebels, he's part of this rebel family, this Saul who rebelled against God. He's a potential usurper of the throne. To have a man alive that belonged to the previous king is a threat to the throne. And he brings him in. And what does he do? He restores everything that his father had lost. He restores everything, all his possessions. And he says, you're going to eat at my table like one of my sons. And basically, he makes him part of his own household. And that's the picture here. That we are, we are a rebellious clan, we are. And we have we are, we've tried to usurp the throne. We deserve death. We deserve God's full wrath. And yet, in his love that was for us, before the foundation of the world, he's forgiven us, he's restored us, he's, he's, he's made us sons. And so we come... If we come like Mephibosheth, trembling on our knees before God, before his just and holy wrath, knowing that we do not deserve anything but hell, and if we come to him in repentance and tears and knowing that we're sinners, then he will, by his grace, invite us to come sit at his table as a child. To the praise, according to verse 6, of his glorious grace 
not to the praise of Mephibosheth, who was praised in the story. David, David was shown to be a man after God's own heart with this tremendous, gracious attitude towards Mephibosheth. David got the credit, and so too our father gets all the credit. You get no credit for coming and coming before God in tears and repentance in, 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 in total ashes and laying your, your face on the ground before him. You get no credit for that. But you know what? If you're really coming before the Lord, you don't want credit for that. You want him to get all the glory when he says, come sit at my table to the praise of his glorious grace. This kaleidoscope that we're looking at just bursts forth with praise for his glorious grace with which he has blessed us, according to verse 6, in the beloved. This phrase, the beloved, is a description of Jesus. Literally, it means the son of his love. Jesus dwells forever in the infinite love of the Father. And we, when we're united to him, in him, that very love that God has for the Son, Jesus Christ, is made in a very glorious way ours. And we are folded into the love that God has for the beloved, for the Son. This phrase, which he's blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. Think about this phrase. You hear, you've heard it before. You've heard it before. Where have you heard this before? But when you hear God say, this is my beloved Son at Jesus' baptism. And when you hear God say, this is my beloved Son at the Mount of Transfiguration. Understand, my brothers, that that love that thunders forth from heaven is now applied to us as well. And so he looks at you and he no longer sees your faults and your failures and your falling downs. He says, this is my beloved child. Co-heir with my son. Not equal to my son, but made an heir in Christ. Contemplate these truths. You were chosen not by anything you did. You deserved a rebel's death, yet you were chosen in Christ with an extravagant love reserved for Jesus himself, through whom you were also counted as a holy and blameless heir, adopted son. How does that affect you? How does it affect me? How should it affect us? Shouldn't that have more effect on me? I looked at this text all week and I said, God, why doesn't this affect me more? Why doesn't it affect our church more? Why doesn't it affect my own parenting of my own son? Why doesn't it affect my marriage more? Because I don't contemplate and, 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 and sit there and meditate upon this truth. This is glorious truth to the praise of his glorious grace. And yet we just kind of read over this. In him we've been chosen for holiness. In him we've been made children. Then by necessity, in him, we have to be redeemed and forgiven. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that's the next place the text goes here for us today. If we are in Christ, we should be overflowing with praise because, first of all, the Father has chosen us to be his faultless adopted sons. But secondly, the Son has ransomed and forgiven us by his blood. The Son has ransomed and forgiven us by his blood. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, his work again. Now, I want you to notice a shifting that happens throughout this text. And by the way, let me just make a parenthetical comment here. I meant to say something at the beginning of the sermon last week. We are on our summer Sabbath. We don't have nursery. Please don't worry. If your kid's crying, don't worry. Let your kids cry. Remember Ephesians? It was written, we, we read it last week. And it said, fathers, or husbands, wives, fathers. And then he said, Children. Hmm. There must have been children in the room when he read the book of Ephesians, when Ephesians was being read to the church. Okay. Cry. Cry, kids. Go ahead. 
Thank you. On cue. Oh, I've totally lost my place because I went there. All right. There's a shift here in the text. We've gone from eternity past to now in this text in verse 7, talking about the present. In him we have present tense redemption through his blood. And we will see that the passage ends with looking forward to what's coming. So that's part of the beauty of this passage. He goes from eternity past to right now to what's coming. So again, all of our Christian life, the whole flight is us in him. From before the ages began to the eternity that come, we're in him. No point on this journey do we get out of the plane and then go back to the edge of the building. Never. We're always in him. So, continuing. It says here, redemption. We have redemption through his blood. That's deliverance or payment of a price. It's really a legal term. It's used uh, especially when referring to someone being bought out of slavery. The next verse in the Galatians passage that I read earlier about adoption uh, has more to say about this. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the picture here is that God has purchased us out of slavery to be his children. So the picture of redemption that Paul paints over and over again in his epistles is of us being rebel slaves who hate the king, yet we were chosen, cleaned up, adopted, made children of the king, and given all the royal rights of the kingdom that's really only due to his son. Through his blood, we have redemption through his blood. That's the price of our freedom. That's the cross. Hebrews 9.22, you're familiar with the passage that there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So the son shed his own blood to pay for our ransom, to forgive our sins, a perfect price, and the only possible price for an infinite offense, the infinite offense that sin is against God. Again, this was not because of how good we were or anything we did, but it says in verse 7, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Riches. We see this theme over and over again in the book. That's why I entitled the series, The Riches of His Grace. Based upon this verse right here, because it happens over and over again. Just the, the, God's grace is this, is the picture is just this bounty, this plentiful, uh, uh, just tremendous overflowing of wealth being bestowed upon us. See, so Paul even goes on with even more uh, grand language here when he says that he lavished it upon us. Overflowing, abounding, more than enough, flowing forth of grace. I saw one definition that said, an explosive plenty. It made me think of my daughter, Olivia. When she was little, she had a very cute phrase that we still remember to say. You know how your kids say these cute little things? And you say, i got to remember that and you totally forget. It's totally gone. Okay? But you, so there was one, though, that we remember. Because when we would give her, like, say, a bowl of Cheerios, I'd pour it in there. And we'd say, there, that's plenty. There you go, that's plenty. And somehow she associated that with a lot. I want more. And so we'd give her stuff, and she'd say, but I want plenties. I want plenties. She would say that, and we used to think it was so cute until she would start screaming for the plenties. And then discipline had to step in. <laughs> she kind of cocked her head well. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> he has lavished. It's plenty and plenty and plenties. He just poured it out upon us, his grace. Verse 8, as we've already begun to read, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This phrase always refers to the truths once hidden but providentially revealed. Not something that we have to discover or uncover. When you read about the mystery of the gospel, it's not something that we have to go, ooh, ooh, figure it out. It's referring to the fact that these truths, these glorious truths about the gospel were once hidden from God's people to a certain degree, and now they have been uncovered to a fuller degree. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, this word for plan was used uh, for an administrator, how he would order his house and, and put his house together. So God had this orderly plan. The universe from the very beginning to the very end has a plan behind it. For the fullness of time, that could also be translated when the time was right, to unite all things in him, 
things in heaven and things on earth. That is the physical realm and the spiritual realm. All things. There's a cosmic aspect to this work that Christ did on the cross. Cosmic consequences of a cosmic king who has a cosmic plan to redeem the cosmos. The centerpiece of which is the redemption of his children. Let me, uh, let me finish this today without, I can't finish the text today. And there's actually a couple reasons I don't want to finish the text today. Um, but I want to go ahead and give you the next point. And we'll go there in our next message. If we are in him, we should be overflowing with praise because one, the father has chosen us to be his faultless adopted sons. The son has ransomed and forgiven us by his blood. And finally, we possess a heritage that has been sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Do you see the Trinitarian flow through the text as well? We've seen the, the flow of time before, foundation, before the foundation of the world, the present tense, and then the future heritage. But we also see the Trinity at work here. The Father is the one who's chosen us. The Son is the one who's ransomed us. And the heritage, the sealing that we have to know that, that, that we're going to be with God forever is done by the Holy Spirit. So let me just read the rest of this text. And then we'll conclude with a couple of questions. And I know that we've gone a little bit long today, but that's okay. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him, there's that word again, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. So we have some more turns to take with the kaleidoscope here in those last verses, and I don't want don't to just skip over them, so we will hit that again in our next message in this series. But I have a couple of questions. Number one, you see it through the text. How did God bring this about? How did God bring this about, this salvation? Well, according to his will. That's another theme throughout this. There's two triplets in this text. One of the triplets is his will. You see it in verse 5, 9, and 11. Okay? According to the purpose of his will. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to the counsel of his will. Paul's driving it home, friends, and if he hasn't already driven it home by using words like chosen and predestined, he's really driving it home again by saying, this is all God's doing. He did it by his will, according to his purpose. He's the one that's in control here. And the second question is this. Why did God bring all this about? Why did God bring this about? The answer is his glory. This is the second triplet in the text. We see his glory, his glory, his glory in verse 6, 12, and 14. Let me get my scripture up here and I'll read it to you. It says in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then it says in verse 12, okay, to hope in Christ that we might be, the, be to the praise of his glory. And then the very end, it ends with this, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he's the one that did it all, therefore he deserves all the glory. And so this morning, my question to finish us off with is this. Do you recognize that? Do you fully understand that? If so, it should change a lot. Are you in the plane? Are you in Christ? Have you experienced this redemption, this this forgiveness of sins by coming before him in faith and, and trusting in him and, and begging him for forgiveness and, and, and confessing your sin before him. Have you done this? Are you in him? If you are in him and, and you are a believer in Christ, have you been living a life that, that's more like standing on the edge of the building? Trying to do things on your own. Setting up your own rules and regulations. Setting up your own standards. Trying to do things by your own power. Trying to live this Christian walk. Trying to be holy and blameless by your own strength. Tell you what that is. Holy and blamelessness by your own strength is called legalism and moralism. And it fails. And it will leave you falling in a free fall. 
from a building when you really need to be in Christ. How dare we try to impose rules upon us, upon our church, and upon our families if we are not daily in Christ, growing in Christ, understanding and relying upon His grace through faith. Don't leap off that building. If you have, then confess it this morning. Confess it. Confess your need to be totally reliant upon His sovereign work. So let's pray. Every head bowed and every eyes closed. And let's pray and let's close. And during this closing time, let me remind you, we're going we're to have a song that we're going to sing. And there is the offering box up here where you can bring your, your tithes and offering. And also where you can bring your, your uh, love offering for Mark. And, and then also your prayer requests. And, uh, and let's be praying. Let's be praying. Uh, but let's also be praising. Those blue slips also say praise, prayer and praise requests. Uh, if you want to be like Paul, put 202 words on there in one sentence. Fine with me. And put it in that box over there so we can be praising with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day. Forgive me, Lord, of my sin as I came in this morning and was frustrated and angered by things that, uh, that have no bearing, that have no meaning, that are just foolishness in comparison with the great glorious truths of the gospel. And so, God, I pray that you'd forgive me. And I suspect in, in this room there are others who need that same forgiveness. God, I pray that you would help us to internalize and, and recognize and, 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 and live these truths. Lord, it's so hard to drink from this fire hydrant and then figure out what we're supposed to do. But that's the whole problem. Lord, help us to see it's not about what we do. It's about who we are in Christ. So God, change us. Make us people. Make us husbands and wives. Make us firstborn sons and daughters. Make us neighbors, co-workers, bosses, employees who rely solely upon your sovereign grace to make us into holy, blameless, adopted sons who will honor you and bring praise your glorious grace. We pray now, Lord, that you hear our song. May it be pleasing to you. Uh, Lord, the text of this song is so rich, but it's also very familiar. So let us just sing it with truth, with hearts that really mean what we're saying. And be honored and glorified in this, Lord, to the praise of your glorious grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as we sing Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, sweet to sound. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. was grace, t'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first chains are gone. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love. 
The Lord has promised. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing Shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. My chains are gone. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns unending. 